I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. As well as being one of the longest-running CEOs in Australia, today's guest is a passionate advocate of women in sport. Her Women in Racing initiative has resulted in syndicates of female racehorse owners being formed all around the world and has greatly contributed to women becoming the fastest-growing segment in racing today. Katie Page, we are thrilled to have you in our month of celebrating Women in Racing. Thanks for coming in. I am so happy to be here. I love talking about racing. (laughs) Tell me, what do you love about racing? If you go back, I don't come from a family that was ever into racing. So at a very young age, I was introduced to Jerry and Singo. My first job was actually, when we had one store, Harvey Norman, was to do a dispersal sale of racehorses for Jerry and John. And in those days, we used to take the horses to the Harvey Norman store at Auburn on the weekend and people would come and buy shares in the horses and then separately we did the dispersal sale and at that time John had a radio show and they decided that it was a really good idea if I got on and started talking about racehorses and I said but I really don't know anything about this. They said do not worry we'll give you the words you'll be a hero which they did and I started to sound really quite knowledgeable And from day one, I just loved the people in racing. The demographics are so broad and I don't gamble, I've never gambled. So it's not as if some people think it's all about that, but actually the side that we're on, we breed, we're very big breeders. We've got horse studs here in New Zealand. I think we've got five horse studs now. Jerry's got a lot of mares. We race a lot of horses. And for us, it's about getting that one horse that can be a top stallion or getting that fantastic filly that becomes a great mare. And then in the mid-90s, Magic Millions came up. So Magic Millions was a great brand that started on the Gold Coast in the 80s. Jerry and I were going to that from its first sale and it was broke. By the mid-90s, it had never made money. It was broke. So Jerry said, we should look at this. And I said, I just love that brand. I know it's had not a good history, But the brand Magic Millions, the fact that it's on the Gold Coast, the fact that you really need a second auction house in Australia. And so we said at the time, but, you know, this is something that we're doing for pleasure. It's not our primary business, so let's get a couple of mates in. So we got Singo in and we got Rob Ferguson in. And I think that was about 96. And now you look at that Magic Millions business which is separate from our breeding and racing business, it's just been an extraordinary success and a great love of my life as well because we started to broaden what racing was about and racing had 100 years of this is what it looks like. So we saw that we could do a contemporary product that complemented the history 
we thought, which was pretty forward thinking of us at the time, that we could actually become in this country more global with racing. So then you had the stallions starting to come from the Northern Hemisphere, you had the shuttle stallions, so that was a game changer. And that really was the the last piece of the puzzle that enabled us to expand this business so that we were getting just as many people from overseas investing as Australians. And now over 50% of the dollars that go through Magic Millions come from overseas. So it's just it's just been this wonderful, wonderful ride. But this industry that we're involved with for absolute passion and the people, I just love the people. They're so diverse. Racing often gets a bad rap because people automatically associate it with wagering. Mm. But you see it as a sport. And we spend a lot of time through Magic Millions actually explaining to people that it's a lot of things. And, of course, wagering is part of it, but look at all sport. It's there. Racing gets the primary bad rap. I don't know why it does, right? It's a vital part of the sport. But then have a look at all the other aspects, the number of people it employs. That breeding side is just the most amazing thing. You've got all of these people trying to get the best stallion in the world. So you can be paying for a top stallion $20, 30 $40 Everyone wants to get that horse that becomes that stallion. I love the mares. I want the good mums. I want to have lots of great mares and we can choose what stallions in the world those mares go to and then you've got the progeny. Look at Winx, right, that fabulous filly that was sold through Magic Millions. She's now got progeny on the ground and people were so connected and still are so connected to that horse. Black Caviar, look what Black Caviar did overseas for people as well as here. They're so connected to that horse. That's actually got nothing to do with wagering. So then you've got all of these other elements. You've got so many people that want to work in the industry. They love horses or they want to run the events or fashion, right? It's endless. Mm. And so hopefully that's what Jerry and I have done with Magic Millions. We've expanded people's idea of what this sport brings to the country. In this series, we're trying to elevate the image of women and the role of women in Mm. racing, and you've been a big part of that. And it's actually been a big part of your entire career. The Magic Millions has been a good vehicle for you to be able to do that. Tell us about your women's syndicate idea. Let's go back a bit with women in sport and how all of that happened because it didn't start with racing per se. Not for you. Not for me, but it helped me formulate what I then did with women in racing. So I went on the rugby league board a long time ago, I think first female on a national sporting board and everyone followed very quickly. But I think that was about 2005. It was a long time ago. You go onto a board because you can contribute, not just to sit there, but it took me 12 months to look at the sport, which was perceived as a very male sport, still is to some degree. But when you looked at this game, the number of women involved in so many parts of this game, the volunteers in the office, in the actual sporting clubs, the fans, when you watch on television, look at the number of women like me that love rugby league. The mothers of all those players. The mothers of all of those players, the partners, the sisters. So 
Within 12 months, I said to the board, we've got to do women in league. We've got to start celebrating the different parts of it, not just bringing women through to run the club or to be the coach. I want to celebrate the women that are behind the players, like the mothers, the partners, the sisters. I want all of those volunteers acknowledged that they're doing amazing things. Do we get technology to them? It was just It was so broad. And then the other part of it was I obviously wanted the broadcasters, the media, to start looking at what their participation in this is. What were the sponsors doing about women in the game? And that started this great conversation and that was another labour of love. It wasn't actually a labour at all. It was just another passionate thing that I was doing to highlight what women were doing, they were always there, right, but they were invisible. And a really important part that Harvey Norman played in this, from day one our board has been supportive of women in sport, women in education, women in business, it's the DNA, and I had to take them through, if you're really going to be supportive of this, you've got to keep being supportive. It's not something you do for one year or two years, you've got to keep doing this. And I said, a part of this will be what we're doing with broadcasters and whatever television station is supporting that sport so that they're supporting women's games. Once others get to see what we're doing, it will be a revolution and that's what happened. So then when I'm doing all of this, some people in the racing industry started contacting me and saying, you know, we're really unhappy that you're doing this for rugby league when you're really a racing person. (laughs) So so they said, you know, you've got these businesses, the investment, why aren't you doing this for racing? And I said, that's a very good thing that you've asked me. So I said, okay, but I've got to do it my way. So again, I thought about it and like all of these sports, men welcome women, but there's this perception that they're very male. And you've been involved with a lot of sport and you know that once you're there, it's not the case. But if you can change that perception, it's um, it's really important. Perception is reality, and, it's... and they and women were a bit scared, and in racing they were a bit scared to get involved because it looked like the men were the ones that owned the horses, decided who the trainer was, chose the jockey. So that's the angle I took with racing. I wanted to have women like me that were buying horses choosing the trainer, the jockey, at the end of it you've got maybe a great filly, does she become this wonderful mare, what happens and then the sale process starts. But I also knew that you had to have some sort of incentive to start it off. An affordable vehicle? No, I said, Jerry, put lots of money on the table. You and I are going to put half a million dollars on the table and we're going to do it every year. Is that all? Right. I said, don't beat me down to 100,000 or 200,000. It doesn't sound good enough. It's got to be half a million. And you can't say it's 500,000. It sounds better as half a million. I said, and we're going to have this bonus and it's going to be our two-year-old race. And, you know, if you win, this is the prize money. If you're a female owner, 100%, there's an extra half a million. And that's shared between the first five fully owned female horses that cross the line. So you could come last and be a female-owned horse and you'd get some money. You could imagine Jerry and a couple of the others were a bit, how will this go, right? This is a bit out there, extraordinary. And I said, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'll be called sexist and then I'll be really happy. 
I said, the amount of PR I'll get because I'm sexist and I've given it to women, it will make me the happiest woman in the world. So we announced it and it was deathly silence around Australia for about five minutes. And then everyone realised because the women started to get online and say, oh, my God, have you seen what Kate's done, blah, blah, blah. I want to buy a share in a horse. And it wasn't actually about women buying the horse outright. I wanted them with their mates to buy shares in horses so they did it together. So this is how the syndicate works. And this is how the syndicate works. And, of course, suddenly the trainers were getting all of these women contacting them saying, I want to buy a horse. When's the next Magic Million sale? Da, 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 da. And then that first sale, that first January after we'd announced this, there was a group of women from around the world, 40 women in racing that wanted to to support me. And they were running around. I remember saying, we're going to buy a horse and this is for you to know that we really appreciate what you've done. That horse became a horse called Global Glamour. The horse cost them, I think, $65,000 won about $1.6 million and then sold as a mare for $1.6 million. I bought half that horse, right? Jerry and I bought half of that horse because it wouldn't have been right if I didn't have, right? Some skin in the game. Some skin in the game with that horse because we love her so much. So she's in fault and she um, holds a very special place for so many women around the world because of that story. And now those women are starting syndicates in different countries because they came from everywhere. They came from UK, Ireland, America, France, Middle East, and it started them doing the same thing over there. It was a global first, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Authenticity is a big part of who you are because, you know, when I look back at your history, yes, you supported women from the get-go, but you're a marketer by trade and a businesswoman by trade and you seem to merge those together so exquisitely well. So the epiphany to get Zara Phillips across the line and what I loved about you doing that is the authenticity in her story and the relationship. I mean, she is an Olympic equestrian. And her grandmother is the most famous female owner of racehorses in the world. And for the Queen, this is truly her passion. So what an extraordinary woman But, you know, her happy time, from what I can see, is her time with her horses. And she knows the breeding, she chooses the stallions, all that sort of thing. And that's um, when you look at the family. So Zara's mother, the Princess Royal, was an eventer. And her father, a famous eventer, her cousins play polo. So that whole family is about horses. Her grandfather, Prince Philip, was a great polo player and now he's a carriage driver, which is an extraordinary sport to watch in itself. So everything that we do with Magic Millions has to be authentic and they have to be truly horse lovers, whatever part of the equine industry they come from. And how I started on that journey was because of our daughter, who's a show jumper. So she lives in Europe. This is her career. She's a show jumper. And I'd turn up to shows and here would be parents, grandparents that were in racing. And you'd have the Magic Millions horse truck, show jumping truck. You'd have the Coolmore show jumping truck. And I said, this is amazing. I hadn't thought about this. It's always been siloed. So you're either an eventing person or a show jumping or a racing or a polo or a dressage. In fact, it's one big family. So I went back to Jerry and I said, this is our next thing. So my ambassador has to be authentically equine, but it doesn't have to be racing. 
and it was suggested that I approach Zara because of, you know, the family background and Zara and I have been working together and have been friends now for I think we started this maybe eight or nine years ago. I'm not good with time. And she is just the most wonderful, wonderful girl. She works so hard as an eventer, so she's trying for the team in Tokyo, and I saw her a month ago at Gatcombe. This is her passion, but she loves racing as well. And then I started to look at the other ambassadors. So I tend to gather people around me. When you look at those ambassadors that we've got, Hamish McLaughlin, right, that family um, known for AFL, but actually they come from polo and racing. And you have a look at Zara's husband, Mike, So Mike in all of this put his hand up and said, how come I can't be an ambassador as well? And he's he loves racing, but he's rugby and racing. And all of his mates, his rugby mates, are racing. Then I've got this fabulous, fabulous family, the Figueres family. I decided that I had to add Polo to the mix and ask Nacho Figueres, who was known as the number one face for Polo, and the Ralph Lauren face is married to this exquisite woman, Delphi, who I think was also a Ralph Lauren, but but a great horse person, right? Her passion for horses. So now I've got Nacho and Delphi as well. And Nacho texts me from time to time and says, Oh, Kate, I'm just going to Bahamas. Are you close by? <laughs> I say, Nacho. I actually sell fridges in Australia and that's where I am, right? That's nice that you're there. (laughs) He is amazing. And he helps me with the polo. So then we've added Billy Slater. So Billy just... Genuine horse lover. Right, started working for Gay at 16, ended up rugby league. But Billy has his horses selling through Magic Millions and we said, do you want to be involved? How about you have a game of polo? He said, sounds great. So now the Slaters and the Figuereses are just great friends. So I've also got Billy and his wife as ambassadors. So you look at this group and it's family and they will tell you being part of this with us is family. But the best part is we have an opening night. It's on the beach, Gold Coast, fabulous. They make sure that Jerry and I are in bed by 9 o'clock so they can all go out together and have a fabulous time. (laughs) (laughs) And they send me photos at 3 a.m. in the morning. Hi, Kate, we're all okay, you okay? Isn't that wonderful? But it's just grown so much Mm. and I think primarily because there is that authentic thread. The Gold Coast is an amazing setting. The city itself realises the income and business turnover it brings to the city. The racing industry itself, as you say, competition is good. From a a sales perspective, there needed to be competition in the space. The English market largely had its own up. And you've been a game changer in that whole space. And that's the next thing. Number one, it's fabulous for Queensland. And working with Queensland Government, we work with Tourism and Events Queensland, and they're just amazing people to work with. And they really appreciate what we've done here too. So then with the Game Changer, as I said at the start, what we did was contemporise racing and it made the other states and the other people involved in racing have a look at what they were doing and say, you know, what else can we do? And that's what we wanted. So our Magic Millions horses race all over Australia. So it's not just about Queensland. We want them to do well everywhere. 
it's really important for the sport. So the probably for Jerry and I to see how everyone's embraced this and done things that, you know, like the Everest, look at the success of the Everest, look at Melbourne Cup and what Amanda's doing there, taking this fabulous traditional brand and she's just adding some layers to that week. So it gave them, I think, that ability to say it is okay to do something a bit different. Well, you stole my line of questioning, but this new intense rivalry between Victoria and the New South Wales Racing, the ATC, you clearly think it's a good thing. I think it's a fantastic thing. It makes everyone really perform to their best. We're here to grow the sport, to bring in new people, to tell everyone how fabulous it is. At the same time, it is not a cheap exercise to be owning horses. And that's why the syndicate is such a good idea. You can have a tenth or a fortieth or something without spending a lot of money. But what they're doing is putting more prize money in there. They're doing it for the country as well as the city. I've never seen a time in racing like this. And that's what it was about. It was, you know, Jerry and I are very good at changing paradigms and getting people to think differently, but then we embrace the whole thing. It's for the whole sport. Someone who really changed the game in racing was Michelle Payne, Mm. winning the Melbourne Cup. You've had a pretty integral role in that movie from the get-go. Can you tell us about that? Richard and Rachel came to me and I think I was one of the first people they came to because of what we were doing in racing. And they're passionate, as you know, about Australian movies supporting Australia in their field and this Michelle Payne story was an extraordinary story. I was overseas when Michelle won the Melbourne Cup. I was in Silicon Valley with a group of tech heads and I had them watching, right, the Melbourne Cup and this girl winning. And then my phone started to go ballistic. I've never had a a reaction to anyone, anything like it. And for all of us that knew how hard Michelle had worked and it was obviously she wasn't supposed to win because this is a hard race. This is a hard career. You don't just get on a horse and have a winner. You've got to put in a lot of years to get to where Michelle got to. So when they came to me and said, if you believe in this, it's we think really important that you support it because others will support it as well. And I said... Even without that, I would support this because it's a great Australian story. It's another view of Melbourne Cup. Again, I saw it as the contemporary story of Melbourne Cup. It was very much in what I've been wanting for women in this country in different areas. It just happens to be racing, that women are there as equals. I had the privilege of seeing this movie just recently. What was your favourite part? My favourite part is the race, the camera, the angles in that race, and it will show um, 25 million Australians how tough this game is, how you have to be strategic. It's not just getting on a horse. It's a lot of things in that race, and it's tough. It's dangerous, and that's the best camera work I have ever seen for people to see what racing is really about. One of my favourite parts of the movie, and there are many, was watching Michelle sitting outside the trainer's box every morning, knocking on that window saying, I'm here, I want to ride. Yep. 
And how many weeks and months did she do that before she got to go? Yeah, but she's, you know, Michelle is an extraordinary woman. She stretched herself a lot. 99% of people would have given up a lot earlier. You know, with great sports people, it's also about that mental ability to focus, to keep going, no matter what disappointments you've had. That's the difference between an average and a good sports person. You can be talented, but if you haven't got the mental strength as well, that girl's got the mental strength. And her family story, as you know, is just exquisite as well. Stevie, just the closeness of that family. It's a wonderful story. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're not Katie Page running Harvey Norman, when you're not Katie Page running the Magic Millions, who's Katie Page? Mm, I'm badminton Katie Page. I play badminton. <laughs> Is that how you stay fit? That's how I stay fit. And I don't know how I started doing this. Mario Fennick, when I was late 40s, said, Kate, you're going to be crap. The older you get, you do not exercise. You do not realise that if you don't start doing something now, and he organised a trainer for me and an ex-rugby league club, and I haven't looked back since. That was the best thing anybody ever did for me. Fitness is the most important thing when you're busy. And I'm on a lot of planes, as you know, our business is in eight countries. So you've got to be really fit to be putting in those sort of hours. But um, fitness is my thing. How do you squeeze it in? When I'm back in Sydney, I play at Thornley. I'm the only female Caucasian, I can tell you. And all the Chinese, Indians, Filipinos, Indonesians, they all say, oh, my good, you're very good. You're very good. But it's an hour of very strenuous lunges, running, etc. A lot of Australians think of badminton as the backyard, right? Christmas Day, Boxing Day, doing the little thing, but it's actually a very strenuous sport when you play it properly. Separate to that, when I'm overseas, I run. So you can do that anywhere. If I don't feel like running, a strong walk or something, go and I make sure that I do that as well. I go to the gym begrudgingly. You look after yourself. But you've got to, you know, and Jerry, right, Jerry turns 80 in two weeks. He still plays A-grade tennis three times a week. Wow. He plays golf all the time. We both understand how important fitness is and it keeps you mentally fit as well. Let's roll it right back to the beginning and when you started at Harvey Norman, you started more as a junior and then made your way up. What was it like in the early days as a woman in business being taken seriously? Because when you leapt up to the board and then became the CEO, and I think that was in 1999, uh, there was a lot of baggage around you at the time. So Harvey Norman started in October 82, and I started with Jerry and Ian five months later. So it was one store, and it was only ever going to be one store. And I knew Jerry and Ian prior to that, and they said, you should come, we need someone. What was your role? And this is the interesting thing. I said, I'm not a secretary. I don't do that. I'll run different parts of your business. And Jerry said, oh, 
can't you just try and type? <laughs> right? It really would be helpful. And I said, no. He said, what about if you only did it a couple of days a week? I said, no, I don't type. One day a week? No. I said, I'm not going to work with you if that's what you think. They said, oh, don't worry, come in. doesn't matter, we'll get somebody else to do it. So the first meeting was with, and we had one store, we had six franchisees, right, all men. And so they sat there and one of them said, so we'd like a cup of tea now, Kate. Jerry said, I don't think that's wise that you've just asked her to do that. And in fact, he said, I've taken umbrage to the fact that you've done that and I will make you all a cup of tea. So from day one, the scene was set. I wasn't there to be a secretary or anything else. And Jerry, from day one, made sure that they didn't treat me like that. But I had to earn my stripes for a very long time. For 10 years, I was earning my stripes because the industry was very strongly male and I didn't expect Jerry to do that for me. You fall in love with Jerry and the relationship takes off and you know there's going to be pushback. How did you deal with it? We decided we wouldn't get married until we went public. (laughs) So we went public in 87 and we got married in 88. And the staff found out about it because we eloped. We were at a conference and we did it. And the the Telegraph put it on the front cover or something. And so all of our people are on the train going, oh, my goodness, they just got married. So early on we set the stage there as well. I always thought the battle was mine. I didn't think it was somebody else's battle to fight. I went to a school in Brisbane, Brisbane State High. That, Did you? Yeah. I'm a State High girl. Really? Yeah. There you go. Wow. So when I was there, it was segregated and there were two really strong women, Dot McCorkle and her deputy that ran the girls and, of course, she had the boys. We came together for lessons and then segregated for lunch, morning tea, etc. But those two women unbeknownst to all of us at the time, were feminists. Neither of them were married. And when I left that school in year 12 to find I couldn't do anything that I wanted, that I had to choose either to become a teacher, get married, become a secretary. Work part-time. Right. But I hadn't been taught that at this fabulous school. That was the game changer for me. It was high school. That was also an era when women were forced to resign or quit their job when they either got married or fell pregnant. Yeah, and I was, you know, a pretty strong character at 17. I decided that I'd be a surveyor for the Queensland Government. I went and I wanted to choose the most male profession. So I got this letter saying, Dear Miss Page, unfortunately we don't take women. It's for men only. So I just realised women were paid like 40% less for the same job, all those things that today we take for granted. So I put my age up, came to Sydney, and I met Jerry when I came to Sydney, Jerry and Singer, when I was like 19. I went back to the school. They invited me back to have a look at their museum, and I feel really badly I haven't done anything about this. I said, the history of the school is very male. Where are the heads of the girls, right, Dot, etc. And in this museum, they're there as just part of the staff when, in fact, they ran the girls and they were just extraordinary role models. So that's another job I have to do. I want to make sure that the girls' part of that school is up there with the boys in that museum. I've always felt State High gave me the most amazing grounding. We were the only state public school 
that had access to the private school competition. So you could hover in both worlds, but you were very grounded in the public education system. But we always felt that we were sort of special, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are. (laughs) But, you know, it was difficult to get into that school. You had to do the exams, etc. It was the first select school in Queensland. And a teacher in primary school said to my parents, your daughter needs to sit for this exam. This school would be fantastic for her. Again, a female teacher. And I talked to um, Kate Jones, one of the ministers in Queensland about it. I said, you know, you had this school, this education piece where anyone that had ability, even if they had no money, could be going to these schools. It was very important. I just love talking about State High. Oh, me too. But clearly, like you, education, I think, is the key for everything. So you set up a scholarship at Western Sydney University, set up a Katie Page scholarship for high-achieving women. Clearly, this all harks back to what education gave you at State High. With those scholarships, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. They're for disadvantaged women. It's not just high achievers. So there's, I've got a category for high achievers, but I've got refugee women. I've got women and girls that come from abusive families. I've got women and girls who come from families where those families haven't worked for three generations. They've all got extraordinary stories. So my first scholarships I did, I met these girls and I don't choose who gets the scholarships. I've said to the university, I want you to choose Part of this is that these girls have to also do community. What do they do in their communities? So it's not just, here's a scholarship, you know, good luck. They're the most extraordinary women and girls I've ever met. So I had this lunch last year and maybe 20 of them came along and each one had to tell me their story. And so I said to Jerry, this is something that I think Harvey Norman should do some scholarships as well. Actually, not Harvey Norman, the directors should do some scholarships because we started at Auburn. Our success in our countries actually comes from Western Sydney and we need to give back and I believe it should be through education. It's got to go to women, I'm sorry, as long as you're happy with that, Jerry. So our directors then did a lot of scholarships. But a week ago I said, and I want you to come to a lunch where you get to meet some of the recipients, and you talk to them. So it's not just me because I'm going to love them anyway. So last week we did 40. He had a table of 20, I had a table of 20, and we moved around. And after it he said, that is the most powerful thing I've ever done in my life. And he started to tell all the stories. And, you know, there were twins that are refugees. They came to this country when they were 15, had no English. They're now doing medical degrees. Their English is amazing. They've got five other brothers and sisters, the parents don't speak English. I've got another one that's been in a a refugee camp for five years. Then I've got a girl that sent me a message to say, Kate, I just got to let you know I've been living in my car for a week. I couldn't go to university this week because of the violence in the family again, but I'll be back there next week. She's living in her car. Right. So these stories, but they all went up to Jerry and said, you've changed my life. You've given me self-esteem, you've given the family hope, you've given, given, given. That's why I add it's not just women in sport but it's women in education, in business and it's how proactive you are as individuals doing something for people, not just talking about it. 
but it's got to be something that's authentic that you really care about. If I take you back to the early days at Harvey Norman, though, when you needed to be taken seriously in your own right and you had the attachment of perception that you had just married the boss, how did you deal with the negativity? How did you deal with the misogyny? They still call me the wife, right? Even in this day and age. You're the CEO and they call you the wife. Sure. Right. And this corporate governance piece, which Jerry's been going on about, I think I'm the longest serving female CEO on ASX top 200 or something. I've been there since 99. And when corporate governance people talk about our company, they never talk about me. They never talk about the female CEO or contribution or anything. It's quite amazing. Does that annoy you? I've said to Jerry, you know, our dialogue's not right. We've got amazing women coming through the executive, running, like I've got a female managing director running Slovenia and Croatia. My COO in Asia is female. I've got these women that are extraordinary. No one wants to talk about the women you've got coming through your company. They just want to talk about how many women you've got on the board. And I said, I agree that you should have women represented in all parts of your business but don't talk about one part of the business so what they're saying to me in actual fact is you can tick a box on that side we don't care about that side and I'll say to you board set strategy they don't run companies so these women coming through your company are the ones that are going to be running companies in Australia in the future don't throw them under a bus put them over here take them out of this stream because you lose all your women running businesses we should be able to have it all but they're taking us in here, it's a, it's a furphy. So do you believe in quotas or targets? I believe companies should say this is what our company is totally. It shouldn't be that there is a quota on a board but they disregard how many women you've got coming through here. That interests me more that your DNA as a company as a whole is delivering for women. You mentioned earlier about your daughter. We've never read too much about I don't family. talk about my children. Terry and I decided when the children were born that they don't have to be, well, they have to have their own lives. And I've seen too many families where the children were told this is your future and it works for some, doesn't work for others. I wanted my children to be free spirits and choose whatever they wanted to choose. And they grew up um, until they were both 18. All of their holidays were spent doing Harvey Norman stores. So they actually had 18 years working at Harvey Norman, unpaid. And so Jerry and I have two wonderful children. They're in their 20s. They're doing what they want to do. They're well balanced and they get to live their lives out of the limelight, whatever. In fact, a lot of people don't know that we've got children. I think I've done a good job in that case. You're in eight countries. You're flat out. What's a typical day in the life of Katie Page? There's no typical day and that's why it's great. It's 24 hours a day. Whoever needs to get us can get us. When your main office is in Sydney, people tend to think you're just Australian and you work Australian hours. We're on the go the whole time. I do the travelling. Jerry prefers not to do the travelling. I turn up in those countries a lot. They have to see you. They have to know you. It's very important for a culture of a company that they're not dealing with faceless people sitting in Sydney It's a very diverse day and I'm dealing with lots of issues and I'm an adrenaline person. People will tell you I've got high energy. I have. 
What's your view on social media? How have you got through the last decade where everything's mobile? Jerry and I are not on social media and that goes back to um, we were one of the first companies trolled badly 10 or 12 years ago. So when we said to the government, it was around about 2009, 2010, we said there's an issue. When the GST came in, there was no such thing as aggregators, as online sales, etc. We need you to look at the borders because you've got competitors overseas that weren't competitors that can ship into this country, not pay GST when they're quite capable of paying GST. That money goes to the states for education, health, etc. You have to make sure that that collection happens. If you want the GST system to work, if you want all of those areas to receive money, then you, you've just got to fix it. it. It was like so basic and so obvious. obvious to us. Anyway, it hit social media and social media was just starting at the time. And these very nasty people decided to take Jerry's um, words out of context and say, Jerry Harvey says that online will never work, blah, blah, blah. He never said that. What he said was what I've just said. It was like unbelievable. This went around the world. And then somebody, some other group saw just how powerful this had been with our brand and they attacked us on something else. So we learnt very early on that social media could be a very bad thing and that there were um, vile people out there that regardless of what you're trying to do, will twist it, do bad things and use it for bad things. So you're deaf to the detractors? We never look at it, right? We went through such a bad time. I don't want to look at it. It doesn't matter because you then get this very... It's a lot of noise. It's a lot of noise and, and... you start to read, because they're only going to do a lot of bad stuff, you're not going to read the good stuff. I don't want to start believing that that's the world. And I really worry for the young ones that are so riveted to social media and what they're supposed to look like, be, etc. They're too young to understand that that's not the world. Yeah, we've been through some pretty bad stuff, but... We're here, we've survived, and it took us eight years to get government to say GST should be collected at the border. Retail is challenged on just about every level. What's your prediction on the future of retail? We don't predict. Retail is very fluid. (laughs) Um, We're actually going very well overseas, and we're in markets. I'm in Northern Ireland, so in Ireland, so I've got Brexit. I'm in Singapore and Malaysia. And Singapore is under stress because of the US and China trade. There are very big ports, so that affects them. There's always something happening in the world. So overseas for us, when you look at those figures, is fantastic considering. There's a lot of tourism dollars that are now going into these places that weren't there before. So that's a really positive thing, even with Brexit and the trade issues for countries that were badly hurt through the financial crisis. You know, Spain, Portugal, Croatia, all of those countries are doing pretty well. The issue that's happened in Australia with consumers is we've had 
uh, I've lost track of how many prime ministers we've had in a very short period of time, which means we've had different cabinets, which means policy hasn't got through, there's been no stability. That has really upset 25 million Australians. Whatever happens in Canberra has been this little isolated bubble and they didn't care. And from a business perspective, it's just ongoing uncertainty. So for those people, and they're the consumers, and the consumer dollar keeps an economy going around, they have said, we don't know what's going on here. You've now got certainty for a period of time. And so from that point of view, I think it's going to be good. I think people just want certainty, right? They just want to live their lives. They have to pay their mortgage, their kids' schooling, power, etc. Right? How much does food cost? They don't want all of that political navel-gazing that was going on. But what they do want is some new world order in retail. How do you stay on top of that and connect it? So I've got a very strong opinion on that. And it goes to one of my pet things at the moment is department stores. It has always been department stores. So in the 90s, there was this thing, department stores were dinosaurs. And of course, they weren't. And of course, there was great things done in department stores. Look at what Mark McGuinness did with David Jones. You know, Jerry had promised to buy me David Jones in 2000. It was a dollar a share. He reneged, right? I could be running David Jones now. Um, Wow, that would have been cool. It would have been. My favourite way of shopping is in department stores, if they're great department stores. Because? Because... A lot of things. It's under one roof. The experience is fantastic. And I'm talking about Selfridges, Brown Thomas, Bergdorf Goodman, Prontomp in France, Saks, Fifth Avenue's just been redone. You've got some great department stores overseas with great owners that know that it's about the experience. So the financial crisis, and if you look at America, for example, number one, a lot of those malls haven't had anything spent on them, right, because everything was going to go online. If you don't give the woman the experience, why should she turn up? I walk into stores around the world that are going badly and you know why they're going badly. You don't want to walk in there. So if you don't get that experience, you may as well go online, buy it. But the wonderful thing about the consumer is the amount that's being done online is still very small. It's not what you hear. But when you look at those figures, think about it. Even think about if it was 10%. There's all sorts of things in there. Even if it was 12%, you've still got 88% of people still shopping in bricks and mortar. Do you ever shop online? Occasionally. What for? I might buy flour and sugar, (laughs) right, the staples. There are certain things that women don't want to go to the shops for. There's basic things which make sense. You know, when you see how many women buy nappies online, I agree with that. Why do you have to go and buy nappies when you could get it delivered to the door? So really, if I was to buy, it's commodity. But if I want to buy a bed, I want to really try that bed. If I'm buying a lounge, I want to be able to feel the fabric, choose the fabric, sit on that lounge. But it keeps coming back to commodity, especially in our product. People want to see it. Think about a fridge. I want to know how big that fridge is. I want to see where my bottles go. Men mightn't care, but I do. The washing machine, I love my washing machine. I want to see what that washing machine does. So common sense has come out of this whole discussion on how people want to shop and why they want to shop. And it's all been just put together as if it's all one product. And that retail's dead and you don't believe it's true. And retail's dead. 
but have a look at our flagship strategy. So that strategy started in Singapore. And we're most proud of this because Singapore, I've got every known online big gorilla, right? I've got Alibaba, I've got Amazon, I've got Shoei, Shopee, I think JD.com, they're everyone, right? Asia is the cesspool for all the big gorillas. And here our best store is in Singapore. Really? And so that's where the flagship strategy started and we did that four years ago. And we said, oh, my God, this is fantastic. So, so then, simplify that strategy. What What's the key difference to what you're doing here? Okay, so then I looked at retail around the world and you remember flagships used to be really important to women. Tiffany's would have their flagship in Fifth Avenue. Everyone had a flagship. And so... I said to our design team and the manufacturers, we've got to get back to a flagship strategy where it defines a brand. People want to go there because they can see what the next few years looks like. It's an exciting experience. Because Southeast Asia's it, the manufacturers said, great, they worked with our design team and they all designed their areas with our design team and what they thought the future of our sort of retail was. And that was Millennia Walk in Singapore. Uh, we had a budget and I think the budget blew out by 40 or 50% or some extraordinary amount and it just kept giving love. So then we said, okay, we do this in every country. We've got one flagship in every country. Australia was the last and that was Auburn that we opened in October last year, which is our best store by far. And then while we were doing that, we then said, okay, what about the other stores and what do they look like? So we took the best from the flagships turned it into premium fit out, which has gone through Singapore, Malaysia and, and some of the other countries, and it's coming back here. We're just putting that in place now. And so Australia will see that over the next six to nine months. But there's nothing new in that flagship strategy. So then I took the board through Tiffany's Fifth Avenue. They hadn't changed that store forever. They kept talking about it being the flagship, but it was as boring as anything. So they got a new designer in, and he was given one floor of that Fifth Avenue store to turn it into what Tiffany's looks like in the future. And it was just an outrageous success. Part of it was they put a cafe there. It's all Tiffany blue plates, etc. You can only book online because they couldn't handle the bookings. And I think it's booked out for 12 months. So all of that's happened around the world. But it's all about the experience. It's now. all about the experience. But it always was. And it got lost. That whole concept of delivering a really good experience for the consumer was lost because the world decided everything was going to go online. You can't build a brand online. How many of those pure onliners are now saying we have to have physical stores, right? So it's all coming around, but it's that investment that you make. I agree with the shopper. If we're not delivering a really good experience to the shopper, they should cane everyone. But there was such a strong push in the world that everything should go online and that bricks and mortar were gone, they should have spoken to women about that. And women would have said, actually, this is what we want. Your business aside, it's allowed you both to pursue your passions and be independently wealthy. What I find quite sweet is that you make sure you get home every night to cook cherry dinner. It's quite sweet, isn't it? <laughs> Serious uh, seeds of a, a genuine love story. But it's also... When you're that busy, you've got to, and, and this is where the family comes into it as well, we had to decide what part of our life was sacrosanct and kept the family together. 
knowing that we're really busy and we've got all of this happening and it, and it happened around food. So I have a very close family. And when you look at it, the precious times were around the kitchen table. Yeah, the mealtime. The mealtime. Whether you had money or not, it was always cooked from scratch, very important. And um, so that became our thing. And regardless of what happens, we go home, we cook a meal, we talk about the day. Jerry and I have extraordinary fights through the day, right? We disagree on everything. But we walk through that door and it's have a glass of wine, do whatever, have a chat. But if I could afford it, I'd still have a glass of wine and have a chat, but I'd get someone else to cook <laughs> so I could and just I, sit at the table and wait. But I actually love cooking. So that's a, I find it relaxing. Jerry grows the fruit and veg. We've got the chooks. So we've got all of that happening. You've got fingers in a number of pies. This is all about racing, but the racing calendar has a couple of big spikes and troughs and clearly the Magic Millions in January, then the Autumn Carnival in Sydney, Spring Carnival uh, coming up in Melbourne. Which out of those three is your favourite? Obviously Magic Millions is what we turn up for. So you're talking to people that breed horses and race horses. It actually revolves around the horses. So at the moment we have a horse called Libertini. Libertini could be the next Winx. This horse is being brought through like Winks, not over-raced, three-year-old, want her racing when she's four, five and six. So when you're talking to Jerry and I, we just love racing, right, whether it's in Melbourne, whether it's in Sydney, whether it's Magic Millions. I mean, Ascot is fantastic, Kentucky Duck. We just love racing. I can't really say to you this is one particular thing. So for us, that week in Melbourne with Melbourne Cup, Melbourne does things so much better, I think, than anyone else. I think about the Australian Open in January. I love being in Melbourne. When you look at Melbourne people, they'll come out when it's raining, snowing. In Sydney, we are so LA, unless it's perfect, right? It's we're, we're so picky. You could go, you could have Melbourne Cup and it's raining and they're all there with their hats and their, and their shoes in the mud, but that whole week is very beautiful. And the shops, right, those department stores I was talking about, the one week that they will do it really well. And do you go so, over you? No, I'm usually travelling. I used to. But if we've got a horse running in the Melbourne Cup, I'll cancel everything. <laughs> we haven't got a horse running in the Melbourne Cup. You've got lots of horses. You and Jerry have lots of horses. Yes. Without naming names, mm. how do you pick a trainer? We have something like 60 or 70 trainers. So it's not as if we're picking one or two. Our philosophy is we spread the love. They're all working really hard and we've got a lot of horses. So we're in that privileged position where we can spread the love. But that's everything that you do. You're trying to encourage everyone. You're trying to give everyone a step up. And if you talk to anyone in racing, they'll tell you that the Harveys give people a hand, a step up. So there's not you're not just choosing one or two. You guys are very generous. There's a lot of philanthropic work you do behind the scenes a lot of people don't know about. People knock at your door every other week. I was one of them with Hockey Australia saying, Katie, can we have some money, please, supporters? And you've got to make some tough decisions and everyone's got a great case. How do you make the call? So you're right. You've got the company side and you've got the personal side. So we get it on both sides. On the public company side, there's a committee as you'd expect, there's a budget and they've got to decide. So you set um, up the framework to manage the it. The framework, absolutely, because it's full on. And especially when times are tough, 
we get even more requests because the money's not available from a lot of companies that might have been there in the past. It's tough for everyone. On the personal side, we get a lot, as you could imagine. It's got to be things like those scholarships where you can absolutely see that it's making a difference and it's making a big difference. But at the same time, we're very much involved with it. I don't really want to write a cheque and not be involved in some way and have that attachment to it. So that restricts it a bit, but I can't do everything and Jerry can't do everything. And when you're giving, people do want that. They want to be able to talk to you and say, you know, this is really important. What's my next step? You've got to give them time. So when you do something, if you can't give them time, it's a problem. I love the fact that you're an early adopter of the global podcast passion and you decided to back Hedley Thomas and the Teacher's Pet, which was a global sensation. How did you anticipate the success of that? I didn't anticipate the success, the global success. Nobody did. I thought it was a really powerful way to talk about domestic violence And you and I both know that a lot happens behind closed doors that no one will ever know about, talk about, and so that was such a powerful story. Headley is an extraordinary journalist. I'd been in America, had been listening to the podcast, the original one, the serial that that New York journalist did, so I understood the format and how engrossing it can be when it's delivered properly. Because it's so personal. It's so personal. But that story, you know, the domestic violence figures in this country keep growing. So as much as we talk about it, there's something wrong. We're not getting through. And it's because it happens, in my opinion, part of it, it, it happens behind closed doors and it doesn't even have to be physical. So I hoped that it would inspire a lot of women that are going through that to actually say, I've got to get help, this is wrong, how do we do this? It can't be covered up like that. You talk about domestic violence in Australia. The parity rates came out. We're still about 14 15% gender pay gap in this country. What would be your advice to politicians on how to close that gap? Why is it up to the politician? So back to what we were talking about. You've got this almighty push on this side on boards with women. What about all the women in the workforce, because this is where it's happening. Not here. They set strategy. So those boards should be saying what's happening in the workforce. And if you've got more women coming through the workforce and demanding it, then it's going to happen anyway. But if you forget about all of those women, those 7 million whatever working, then how can any change happen? You had a strong sense of self from a very early age and you accredit that to State High and your upbringing and education. But we've still got, as you say, women in the workforce that can't get a fair go financially or career-wise. What advice can you give them? Do you know the advice that I give a lot of young women is, and I've been doing this for a very long time, there is no man that's going to come along on a white horse and take you away from all of this. You have to be financially independent. Even when you marry that man, you have to be financially independent. I hope your marriage works, but what if it doesn't? What if you've got children? A lot of women are still not looking at that piece. 
So as many young women that I can talk to about that, that's my thing because, honestly, you would be amazed at how many young girls still think but this will solve everything and they won't have to do this or that. I'm sorry, (laughs) but I've got a strong sense of self because I always knew I was going to look after myself. And when you're in a partnership, you're there as an equal, not as, well, I'm here and I have to ask for stuff and that immediately puts you on the back foot. It immediately creates problems. Now, not everyone can do that. And when one of the things I look at is certain ethnicities don't allow that. And we see in the western suburbs of Sydney in certain ethnicities that problem. So even though I say you've got to stand up to this and I have had girls that are in terrible trouble but they can't leave their husbands. So that's a separate issue again. That bec- It becomes complex when I start to say it to those girls and their communities They can be ostracised in their communities and that's all they know. So when it comes to managing your own money, even if you don't know how, you should at least understand it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you do your own finances? Sure. Jerry and I have always had separate finances. I don't want him knowing what I'm doing. I have freedom. He has freedom. At the end of the day, he has a go at me. If I do a bad investment, I'll have a go at him with his bad investments. We're pretty hard on each other. But I've always earned my own money, had my own investments. Most of mine's real estate. I love real estate. I love architecture. That's my passion as well. My investment's also my passion. You kept your name. Mm-hmm. Because? Jerry didn't want to take my name. Why did I want to take his name? What's the point of that? But where I came unstuck was when we had kids and I took them skiing in Canada and we were stopped at the border because my passport was in a different name to the children and because of the number of fathers or mothers trying to get their kids over the border, I couldn't get them in. I had to have a letter from Jerry. So I had to decide then I've got three names. So my passport now, it's Harvey, because of the problem I had travelling with the children. In some parts of the world I'm Paige and in others I'm Paige Harvey. It depends where I'm at. So it's very confusing for a lot of people. You sound very comfortable being a feminist. Mm. I'm quite comfortable saying that I'm a feminist. There's a new generation coming through, though, who are quite uncomfortable with the tag. I know. Where, how did that happen? I've been a feminist since I saw Woodstock. I've been a feminist since I was 13. The era that I went through was of this fabulous freedom. The pill had come in and, you know, the 60s, 70s were just amazing. So emancipating. That's my era. So I've always felt like that. So for the young ones not to feel strongly as feminists, I actually don't understand it. And maybe they're very comfortable in their lives. Maybe they feel like they have got a quality that there's nothing to fight for. I'm not sure. But it was my era. And it's not true. There's plenty to fight for. There's always plenty to fight for. (laughs) And you're a fighter deep down. Yeah, sure. It has been an absolute delight talking to you, Katie Page. I wish you the best for the Spring Carnival coming up. I could talk to you for hours, but you're a very busy woman. We're very grateful for you sharing some time with us today. And let's hope Libertini is a great horse. (laughs) You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.